Christ doesn't just kickstart creation. He supports it. He maintains it. He bears it. He buttresses it. He buoys it. And he keeps it together. In him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1.3 again, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. What is presently preserving the universe? We ought to have a physicist up here like Andy talking about this for a moment. Maybe Guy has a thought on this. Warren Wearsby writes that a, a guide once took a group of people through an atomic laboratory and explained how all matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. The tourists studied models of molecules and they were amazed to learn that matter is made up primarily of space. Space. So during the Q&A period, one visitor asked the tour guide, if this is the way matter works, what holds it all together? And for that, the guide had no answer. But Colossians 1.17 has an answer. Not just an answer, the answer. In him, all things hold together. Was one commentator put it, apart from Christ's continuous sustaining activity, all would disintegrate. So you may have considered that Christ made the people on your list of five, but have you considered the reality? Have you entertained the fact that he is the only reason they continue to be on your list of five? He's sustaining them. You see, why? Why is he sustaining them? Why is he holding them together? That brings us to the third reason for his supremacy. He's sustaining them Because Christ reconciles all things. Verses 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We had this paragraph read at our wedding. Every time I read verse 20, I think about January 1st, 2000. There's a lot of glorious truths in these verses, especially in verses 18 to 20, and we would be here the rest of the day if we were to unpack them all. So I'm going to fish one truth out of here, and then we'll do some application on the back end here. The one truth I want to look at is tied to a phrase that we've seen four times already. It's the phrase, all things. All things. So verse 16, by him all things were created. Verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 17 again, in him all things hold together. Now, verses 19 and 20, God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself All things. Now, please don't stumble over that all things in verse 20. If you're like me, you might wonder if Paul is indicating some sort of universal salvation here. A startling number of evangelical Christians are these days. Entertaining the possibility of universal salvation for all people. 
Now, some people go to universalism because they don't believe the Bible is authoritative. There's other people who believe the Bible is authoritative and say properly interpreted. It teaches universal salvation. And this is the one, of the, one of the texts they might marshal in their corner. And I want us to understand it carefully. Don't stumble over it. Paul is not talking about universal salvation here. Reconciliation is what Paul is specifically discussing in verse 20. And reconciliation in New Testament terms does not mean happy Joyful, obedient submission in every case. Sometimes, breathtakingly, amazingly, it just means raw submission. It means, in some cases, grudging submission. The submission of duty and not of delight. Reconciliation here simply points to a resolution of all things. This fits well with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. God has put all things under his feet in subjection. Or Philippians 2, 10 to 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The invitation is open to all. It is indiscriminately offered. Christ made all things. He sustains all things. And we have the privilege as his ambassadors to be a part of the reconciliation of all things. That people would find peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And if you're with us today, and if you don't know the peace of God through Christ, through his blood, shed on the cross, I invite you to come to Christ today. Come to him. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And he is soon to return. The gospel is not behave. It's believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. But this is not a a truth that you can just move away from. This is not one that you can avoid indefinitely. One day, one way or another, there will be reconciliation. There's a, a familiar worship chorus that has been sung in the church for many years. Come, now is the time to worship. One day, every knee will bow. It's based in Philippians 2 that we just read. Every tongue will confess that you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still, the greatest treasure remains for those who choose him when? Now. That's an understatement. The greatest treasure remains for those who choose him now. So I invite you this morning to come. I'm not imposing a religion on you. I'm inviting you into reality this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord. He made you. He sustains you. And he's provided the terms of reconciliation for you. Come to Christ. I have two final questions by way of application for us. I just offer them to all of us who are seeking to make Jesus known. Or looking. It's so easy to be discouraged with evangelism, isn't it? So we want a little bit of encouragement as we go into the week. I offer these questions as applications for those of us who follow Jesus and, and want for him to make us become fishers of men. He is the maker of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. 
He's the reconciler of all things. We see it. And it's really good news to us. So why don't unbelievers see this? Why is this not evident to people outside the family of God? It's not evident. It's not seen by unbelievers. And it wasn't seen for you before you became a believer. Because 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, Our gospel is veiled. It's veiled to them that are perishing. Now Seth is going to unpack this, I think, in some detail next week. And so we'll let him go there. But we do need to know this reality, that our gospel is veiled. Why is it veiled? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, in, in this case, the God of this world, lowercase g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, it was that little phrase, image of God, that struck me as relevant to Colossians 1.15. Who is the image of God? Christ, the icon of God. But the God of this world has blinded their minds. But the God of this world is part of Colossians 1.16, principalities, powers, and so on. The God of this world, even the evil one himself, is someone who was made by, made through, made for Christ, serves his purposes, which leads me to believe that we might have some hope as we think about the blindness of unbelievers in our lives. Why don't unbelievers see this? The the God of this world has blinded their minds. Nevertheless, there's hope. There's hope for those who are blind to the supremacy of Christ. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, and with this we'll close. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we help unbelievers see the supremacy of Christ? You ready for the solution? Say the supremacy of Christ. Say it. If you want them to see it, then say it. Paul likens it to a creation event, the creation event. The very first thing that happens in the Bible is God says, let there be light. And that's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. God says, let there be light. And there is. And he does it as we proclaim Jesus. Evangelism is not an imposition of our religion on the world. Any more than light is an imposition to darkness. Or sound is an imposition to deafness. Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. So evangelism can't be an imposition of our religion on the world. Unbelief is an imposition on Christ's world. 
So evangelism is not an imposition of our religion on the world. It's an invitation to reality for the world. Christ made all things. He sustains all things. He reconciles all things. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, everyone on your list of five, was created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him your list of five holds together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Don't get back down this week. Evangelism is not an imposition of your religion on the world. It's an invitation to reality to the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's, it's getting harder to follow Jesus in this nation. And Lord, under your providence, we thank you for it. We thank you for the uh, press of unbelief around us, for it makes the gift of faith even more startling and precious. We pray, Father, that you would give us, above all things, an overwhelming sense of joy and gratitude that you sent your Son for us, that in his body on the tree, Christ absorbed our punishment. He bore our penalty. We pray, Father, that you would fill us full to overflowing with love for lost people. That's what we need. If fear is one of our great obstacles, then what we need is love. There's mature love, perfect love casts out fear. Lord, fill your people with joy this morning in believing the gospel. And would you send us out, Lord, to everywhere you take us this week. Lord, I'm especially mindful of those on vacation like we will be here. I pray that you would help us to be awake, broad awake to what you may want to do while we are away, visiting relatives, friends. Lord, grant this church evangelistic fruitfulness. We can't make the fruit happen, but we can be faithful. Help us to be faithful, to be and make disciples this week. In Jesus' name, amen.